0: Welcome to Industry Focus,
1: the podcast
0: that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day.
1: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
0: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan
1: Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, April 6th, and I'm the host of this consumer goods episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma, and we're going to be talking about a recent IPO in the high, higher education tech space, if you will, Coursera. Asit, thanks for joining.
0: Emily, I appreciate you having me on. I feel like something of a scholar today, because we're talking about online education. It's taking me back as i understand it's taking you back <laughs> yeah as to say if i
1: if i if i'm honest this isn't one that um, i'm particularly excited to cover i i don't know if it's my job or if it's the way i talk i think some people Presume that I was very successful in school. And while I was not a complete failure, because it got me to the point where I am today, I would not say it was always a positive experience for me. In fact, I still, as an adult who has been out of school for over half a decade now, have a recurring nightmare that I'm. I forget about a class for an entire semester, or I forget about a test, and I show up in the classroom and the teacher's like, are you ready? I mean, this is the final exam, it's 50% of your grade, where have you been all semester? And I mean, that that recurring dream, no joke, probably wakes me up from my sleep on a on a monthly basis. <laughs> so covering this company has brought back some of those feelings.
0: You know, Emily, I think we all have dreams like that, maybe not in the classroom setting, that one has fallen a little bit out of my rotation, the older I grow. But every once in a while, I will wake up um, and I'm standing there. Maybe I have to recite a speech or answer a difficult question. I'm flabbergasted. I'm starting to sweat. And I'm thinking, why did I Why did I even do this? I could have done so many other things in life than trying to get this degree that I'm going for. And, but, you know, like you, I wake up at some point. Whew. I'm through with school. It's all over. <laughs> you know, it, that's a good feeling. It's almost worth the bad dream just to get to that bit of relief. That school when when you're out of school, school ain't happening. I must exactly. say. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Although I'm sure I'm sure there are many millions of Coursera users that would agree with you that despite the challenges that school may have posed for many of us, it's still something that's worthwhile and uh, definitely worth pursuing, which is really what Coursera has has created as the bread and butter of this platform, something that used to be known as as MOOC, or this, this massively open online courses and education company that has now started reinventing its business by partnering with uh, businesses and institutions. We'll get to it all in I'll let you explain it because you know it way better than myself. But for investors for whom this may be an entirely new business, Coursera is this academic platform that filed their S1, so their intent to go public, back at the beginning of March. They actually went public last week on March 31st. They trade under the ticker symbol C O U R, and they have a market cap of just over $7 billion. So I'm not sure if that sounds large or small to you. Maybe it depends on how familiar our listeners are with the business. But that is up forty over 40% in the week since their IPO. So it has definitely been a a successful IPO just based off price appreciation.
0: Yeah. But you know, if it were as easy as to judge a stock by price appreciation alone after the IPO, investing would be so easy. We have to look at the business, which is what we're here to do. Um, So I am going to jump into the business model. Emily, I'm going to. To talk a little bit about uh, the founding of this business and then sort of the nuts and bolts of how they set up their catalog. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. So without further ado, interesting, you mentioned Massively Open Online Courses or MOOCs. I associate those in my mind with um, really good institutions like MIT and Stanford, because when MOOCs first opened up, they were at the forefront of this. They just opened up their uh, university catalog on a limited basis for thousands of people. And Coursera, as you mentioned, came out of this. It was founded in two thousand and twelve by two Stanford professors, Andrew Ing and Daphne Kohler. Um, both of these were sort of genius professors at Stanford. Um, working on cutting-edge stuff that now is just wending its way into the everyday fabric of our lives. Artificial intelligence and machine learning, we're seeing it everywhere. But you think back uh, to 2011, this was still relatively new stuff. So Both Inc. and Kohler were offering MOOCs in 2011 in machine learning and artificial intelligence and Inc.'s course had 104,000 registered users. All across the globe. And I just found that so interesting. About 13,000 of those students received a certificate of completion. They finished the course. And these two professors who were friends decided they were onto something. (laughs) So they built this platform. They got some funding. Um, But different from other platforms that were beginning at that time, which were more focused on skills building, they decided to go ahead and partner with any institutions they could that were higher education with good reputations, and so they were able to sign agreements with um, University of Michigan, with Princeton, UPenn, University of Pennsylvania, and of course, their um, home University of Stanford, which, which they left to found this company. If you fast forward today, Coursera partners with about 200 uh, institutions, 150 of these are universities and 50 are industry partners. And I'm just going to read this from their S1. Coursera offers a broad range of learning offerings from a 2-hour guided project for $9.99 on how to build a website to a master of public health degree from the University of Michigan for approximately 45,000 bucks. Well, they don't say bucks. I'm saying bucks. But still, that's big bucks. <laughs> I mean, this is so interesting. They have uh, a really Wide, wide range of offerings. You can do something very, very simple or you can go in for a whole degree. So let me just give a few um, statistics about this course catalog and then I'll pause here and, and we can discuss some. In the Coursera c- catalog, they have about a thousand of what they call guided projects. So these are projects you can complete in under two hours, again, for about 10 bucks a pop. You can also take one out of 4600 courses which last 4 to 6 weeks and many of these are free there's uh, a number of these courses that you can take without paying a dime and this runs to about 99 bucks for the ones that are paid courses then they have something called specializations which is basically that skill building element that many other platforms have been offering they've got about 500 specializations these last 3 to 6 months they run from anywhere from $39 to $99 a month. Then they have certificate programs. There are about 40 of these. These take a little bit longer, three to 12 months. Same price range, $39 to $99 a month. So You're going to pay anywhere from $2,000 to $6,000 to get a certification. Think professional certifications that you can use, say, in data analytics, um, all types of industries. You can beef up that resume. And finally, they've got 25-degree programs. These are two-plus-year programs. They'll run you anywhere from $9,000 to $45,000. So um, just curious, Emily, I think both of us had loosely followed this uh, company just hearing about it over the years. i had never delved into any of the statistics until they published the S1. What were your thoughts when you sort of looked at the cat catalog, what it's evolved into?
1: I, I love that question. And I'm going to do my best to kind of Oh, refrain some of my skepticism until later in the show. because Come I do on, think, Emily, bring it. <laughs> well, I do think my opinion about the business has been colored by my experience with to you, which is not an identical business, but you could say it's a competitor to Coursera. Uh, we could talk about that later in the show. I will give credit where credit is due here. One of the things I really like about the Coursera catalog and business model is that it, it doesn't really quite have a one-for-one competitor in the market because they have essentially these three different avenues of business growth. They have the consumer offering that you just mentioned, so the average person um, coming in on this freemium model, they'll come in, they'll take a course, uh, just something really simple that's free, and then they think to themselves, that was a cool experience, I could further my career, further my education with this and slowly work up the tiers paying for that $10 course and then getting into the hundreds and then eventually maybe moving on to some sort of master's program. So I like that kind of pathway that Coursera has carved out. I think it's the only at least the only business that I'm familiar with that has that same consumer-facing model while also still partners partnering with institutions and universities on the back end. So I like the fact that they're getting revenue from consumers. I also like the fact that they're getting revenue from businesses, so just uh, employers that are looking to get subscriptions for their employee base so they can u- utilize those resources to improve their workers and then also universities which are obviously trying to make this digital transition even before covid happens all of this i like and i can understand why 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 it can make a really compelling value proposition and i do think that coursera does have something unique in the funnel that they've created
0: yeah so i'm going to withhold just in the interests of building suspense my opinion where i landed on coursera <laughs> but <laughs> I, love I really it. i like the upfront skepticism i'm a big fan of chegg and so, This is an online uh, learning company that specializes in book rentals, which is now a smaller part of the business, uh, online tutoring, knowledge base, uh, providing answers for students to learn, and they're increasingly using artificial intelligence to build student skills in grammar and math. They have a really focused model. They're not trying to do necessarily a big front-end and back-end and be all things to all comers which Coursera sort of is and they've carved out some market share in doing that. Um, so I will try to keep my tone neutral in case anyone uh, was able to ascertain any of my opinion <laughs> on the the company's investment up until then. Let's uh, in the, in those three avenues that you mentioned, let's look at just a few statistics. So they've got 77 million registered, they call them learners. So if we say learners, we really mean users. I think that's what they mean too. So 77 million registered learners. They've got about 2,000 businesses that are paying for their Coursera for, for Business offering. During the pandemic last year, 4,000 colleges and universities launched free online programs via something called Coursera for Campus. So there is also um, part of this freemium model allows universities to put some of their own content up, and I think this was very helpful. Built a lot of goodwill with uh, universities that aren't necessarily partnering with them in any other fashion last year, and also at the end of last year they had about 300 global governments and governmental agencies that were using the Coursera for government offering. This is to train employees. And to improve employee skills. They, they call this upskill. I think that's the lingo of the educational industry, but basically it's, it's training. Um, so these statistics are impressive. I think it gives us a flavor or, or a taste of the breadth of, of where they're going and also helps delineate, as, as Emily explained for us, these three big avenues that they've got, um, all of which, we'll talk about this in a bit, are growing very quickly. But let's let's talk about one little quirk of the company, which I sort of liked in a way. <laughs> we've so this is a certified B Corp, and we've come across B Corps before. Famously, Etsy was a B Corp before it changed its status. Um, but recently, Emily, we have talked about ThreadUp, which just had its IPO. We covered their uh, IPO filing a few weeks ago. That's an example of a company that has achieved B Corp status. So, B Corp status is given by a third party and it simply means that a company has met certain standards in sustainability and environmental performance to receive this designation. It doesn't have a lot of weight otherwise in the real world, or, although um, it can be influential if you've got this status for your brand and it can influence the way a board acts. Now, tacked Onto the certified B Corp status, Coursera is also a public benefit corporation organized in the state of Delaware. Well, what's that? This is a, a more recent type of uh, corporation, and it's actually one that has, I, I would say, sort of ESG goals behind it environmental, societal, governance goals. If you are a public benefit corporation, let's call it a PBC, you're required to include in your charter a specific public benefit as part of the statement of purpose of your company. Most of the times in boilerplate legal language, companies just say, hey, we're organizing for to do business for any lawful purpose. That's the key phrase. But when you choose this PBC path, your board is forced to consider public benefit alongside the goal of maximizing shareholder value. and They point to whatever specific benefit you stated in your charter. This is Coursera's specific public benefit to provide global access to flexible and affordable high-quality education that supports personal development, career advancement, and economic opportunity. Now, I personally find this pretty laudable, but the company does cite in its risk section that this PBC status is a business risk because key strategic decisions aren't always going to be made with a solely economic purpose behind them.
1: I I agree with your take. I think nine times out of 10, if I could totally make up a statistic, um, being a PBC is probably a net good thing, not just for shareholders, but for the world at large. I love expanding the mandate of companies to be not just looking at shareholder value, but to be looking at all stakeholders in a business. Because I think that those two things long-term inherently go hand in hand, and we can debate about it all day. I won't force anybody to listen to me. And the Studies really aren't there yet to back up opinions on either side of the fence. So Any opinion you have is, is probably just influenced by personal experience, at least it is in my case. However, In this case, I do think there is a tangible business risk with Coursera being a PBC. Uh, they, They call it out themselves, but because of the way that the business is set up, I worry a little bit about their ability to meet that very lofty mandate. Because while it's easy to say that we have these goals, to pursue them is another thing entirely, and to pursue them aggressively, especially on a global level, is a massive undertaking that I worry sets their mission almost too large, and uh, this is something that I, I was planning on mentioning it when we got into some of their metrics. But I'll go ahead and mention it now, in particular as it applies to their their demographic, right—the audiences that the business seeks to serve. And the reason why I think this can be a real business risk for them is studies have shown that online Educators, especially ones aimed at helping developing countries, have historically actually moved towards developed countries. Um, it's the people who have most reliable access to internet, most reliable access to information, and so they have this. Big broad mission to provide education and access to people who wouldn't otherwise have it. But most of these businesses up to this point have failed at doing that. And despite the fact that over around half of their revenues come from outside of the United States, they're still centralized and developed countries. And I don't know how they could say, okay, we're a public benefit corporation in their S1, but not provide any demographic information about the users of their platform because. I, at least I didn't see any true information about who were the main users. They provided some anecdotal cases of people who would be great examples of this global, affordable access to education. But in reality, studies show that they don't quite get there. So I'll I'll be watching that. I wish they had backed up this big, broad mission with some tangible fundamental metrics to say, here's how we're executing on, here's where our customers mainly come from, here's how we've improved upon their access to education, but they just didn't give us that.
0: Yes, it reminds me of another um, S1 that we looked at, another IPO, which came to market. And this was, help me remember the name, uh, Emily, but it's the uh, it's Rover, the company which uh, you can use their app to uh, hire someone who will pet sit your pets or, or do other tasks. Um, great S1 and overall uh, very impressive presentation. But they left out some key demographic information, which for me, while I was trying to puzzle through, made a few things difficult. I had to make some assumptions and leaps here. And I think this is astute to put your finger on this, because if we had some of those global demographics we might be able to see more tangibly where risk areas will occur. And these come down to capital allocation decisions down the road. So if we're going to have this fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders, that means one thing. But if we've got a legal obligation to also provide for this public benefit, that's quite another. And what happens when the two clash? When we as a company, um, speaking in the first person for Coursera or really the third person for Coursera, when we've got to now go into, let's say, uh, some countries in Africa which aren't as developed as maybe Kenya or Nigeria, the big GDP countries in Africa, and we are going to sacrifice some margin points because it's for the public benefit. How does that square away with our shareholders who they've had a nice ride since we went public and they're expecting us to uh, keep pace with, let's say, Udemy, and I'm now projecting to the future because Udemy is a competitor. But it's privately held, but let's say that they are public in the future. You can start sort of churning through these questions of how how the the tussle or the conflict between the public benefit and the shareholder benefit how that all plays out. And I think it's it's fascinating. But we'll move on to to metrics, and uh, maybe we'll return to this theme a little bit later. So, Emily, I actually. It, It feels like we're always grading these prospectuses as we go along and and do more and more of these IPOs. You know, like the the metric section, I sort of give a B, B plus two. They had some useful metrics, maybe not as drilled down detailed as I would have liked to have seen. But um, I'm going to talk through a couple here and then maybe we can trade off on some of these. But they do track a really important big picture metric, which is Total registered learners. Uh, mentioned earlier that they have about 77 million of these. That number is about double from what it was in 2017 uh, when they had 30 million of these users. And last year's growth in registered learners was really impressive 65% growth year over year. Although you have to take into account that it was a COVID-inflected year. So there were tons of people at home. Suddenly looking for online education. So it's sort of obvious why that number would have been particularly strong last year. Um, As you mentioned, Emily, they've got this freemium model, which sort of moves learners through free offerings and into paid offerings. So that's one big part of their strategy to grow those registered users. And also, um, they find that the learners as they become customers are good sources for some of the other uh, revenue streams that they've got. So they they have some lead generation that derives uh, from learners who started with the the free model and now are recommending it in companies that they work in. So uh, a nice little momentum that they build through their model. They also track number of degrees students sounds just like I said it, not number of degree students, but number of degrees students. This is also rapidly expanding and and also got a boost last year from COVID. What I found interesting, Emily, is that while you'd have expected a big boost in the first quarter of last year, which they got, their total degree-seeking students jumped about 160% versus the first quarter of the prior year to 7,200. What was interesting is that in the following quarters, the second, third, and fourth quarter, Coursera averaged about 90% year over year growth in that metric, ending this, the year with almost 12,000 students enrolled in degree programs. So it seems like they may be able to get a little bit more of a longer term tailwind uh, out of some momentum coming out of COVID. I was interested in that because degree students are sort of a high gross profit business for the company. Um, uh, that's where a lot of bread and butter revenue can come from and and bread and butter profits. So this is a, a good thing, I think, for them if they can hold on to some of these users.
1: It's funny that you mentioned that. I think out of all the businesses, you know when we look at their s ones, I'm not going to dock them too many points on metrics. I always want to know more information than companies are willing to give up, and i I need to come to accept that. And despite the fact that I feel like they didn't give a ton of customer acquisition metrics, though two metrics that I feel like are missing here are uh, get at that degrees students' idea, which is that gross profit is increasingly being driven as people moving up the value chain in terms of their education, so getting towards the higher value degrees. And There were some metrics that I was hoping to see associated with that that we didn't quite get. In particular, completion rates. I was surprised they didn't provide any more insight into what completion rates look like on their platform. They provided some with their university partnerships that were pretty decent, but actually on the Coursera site itself, there was very little information. And that's, again, pretty critical going back to the PBC thing, uh, because again, going back to the studies that show that a lot of the people from underdeveloped areas that access these sites aren't able to complete them, so you're not delivering on your mission if people come into your courses but don't end up completing them. One of the metrics that 2U provides that I feel like would have been really valuable to see here for Coursera is something called full course equivalent enrollments, and that is a unique thing to 2U, but there was really no one-for-one equivalent that I saw with Coursera. Essentially, it's getting a sense that the the a number of enrollments that are happening on a per-user basis and the amount of money that they're generating from those enrollments. and They track this over time. For 2U, it's been critical because the average course load has actually increased, but the cost per course has decreased, which has deteriorated their financial position. If we could get an insight into how they would have calculated the average courses per user and how that's tracked over time, I would have liked to see those two things.
0: It's interesting. They provide some metrics for their Enterprise business, which help you sort of gauge how they're doing in terms of the stickiness of customers, how much uh, the spend is growing, but there is no equivalent thing on the consumer side. Now, in the absence of that information, uh, we're left to guess. Maybe they've got a lot of churn, if you will, in those uh, courses that students just aren't completing them and they drop out after a third or a half. And it could be that they mirror. What the experience was of MOOCs when they first started. Remember, at the top of the show, we're talking about those hundred thousand students who enrolled, which is a big number. But, and I I put only in air quotes, only thirteen thousand completed the, the course. And maybe management felt that this might turn off investors if we saw the detail of just how hard it is to get a cohort of learners to move through and complete a degree. Uh, together online. And we see this in universities, of course, it's really hard to get graduation rates uh, into the upper 80s and 90%. Only a few, I I should say, a smaller percentage of really great institutions, be they public or private, ever hit those numbers. And lots of universities and colleges across the U.S. have graduation rates that are in the 70s. So maybe it's just part of the the game here, but I, I would have loved to have seen that as well. Um, and speaking of those paid enterprise customers, this is something that I think has potential for Coursera, and at least they've given us a little bit to to chew on here. So they define an enterprise customer as a customer with a contract that identifies as unique um, with a unique contract. So basically, if you think of, let's say, a business that wants Coursera's uh, platform for its employees, That business could be, let's say, a Fortune 500 company with lots of divisions. Every division that signs a contract as a unique customer is going to be an enterprise customer. So you could have maybe 10 so called enterprise customers that nestle up under one Fortune 500 business. Um, And this is something where it's sort of easier to measure your retention and your growth because you've got. Customers that you're trying to hold on to, and I think they do a fairly good job. Um, They have a a more traditional dollar based retention type of uh, metric, they don't call it dollar based retention, but that's basically what it is where they track their enterprise customers and basically show you that the growth is either expanding or decreasing every year. And that metric accounts for attrition, it doesn't Double count new customers, meaning it doesn't add new customers in when it's looking at a particular cohort. So it's a pretty clean metric, um, Emily, or, or at least cleaner or better described than some metrics that I've seen in recent annual reports and S ones. This metric increased from about 106% in the 12 months ending 1231 2019 to 114% in 2020. So nice growth there, and 114% is is pretty decent for this one slice of the business
1: and it also shows you where management's focus is in terms of fueling growth when you look at the metrics you mentioned didn't get a lot of insight on the consumer side but we got a lot of metrics as it relates to its enterprise customers so it's in my opinion pretty clear that management thinks those are going to be the customers that are critical for financial success in the future
0: yep and um just to wrap up our discussion on um at least the 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 enterprise metrics and metrics that are associated with the other parts of the business, uh, this is sort of how it all falls out in the top line. The customer revenue or consumer revenue is two thirds of the company's top line, and that grew at a fifty nine percent year over year rate last year. The enterprise business, which we've been talking about, so business customers and and some institutions, that's twenty four percent of the total revenue for Coursera and it grew at 47% year over year in 2020. And then the degrees revenue, that third big revenue stream, it's about 10% of the top line, but it is also a fast growing business. It's about 60% of the total um, for the company. So you can see while the consumer revenue, that freemium model that brings in learners, is still what's driving the engine, increasingly it's I think it's enterprise and to a lesser degree, this faster growing uh, degrees revenue business that might be accounting for a little bit more of growth and profits uh, in the future.
1: Well, and if you look at their financial performance, that's exactly what the numbers paint right now. I think uh, there's a lot of metrics you could pull out here. The most critical one, in my opinion, to watch in terms of financial performance is probably just the gross mar- gross margins. Uh, they were at 53% over the last year, up slightly oh, versus 2019, whereas around just under 52%, so slowly ticking upwards. And Management says that it's increased not just because the business is getting more efficient which is wonderful as they scale but also just because of the focus on enterprise and degree-based revenue which as you mentioned earlier is higher margin revenue for the business but even with those gross margins improving even with more of their revenue coming from higher margin businesses this is still a loss-leading business right their operating income of negative 67 million over the past 12 months which is pretty substantial when their revenue is less than 3 Hundred million over the same time period, but it is it is trending in the right direction. Revenue is up nearly sixty percent over the last year, and while some of their expenses grew more, in particular sales and marketing, in my opinion, the critical expenses that's research and development, G&A, right, general and administrative expenses grew slower than top line growth. In my opinion, it's kind of pointless to to pick apart the financial performance here, at least in too much detail, because. Most of these businesses, especially businesses like Coursera, which has a consumer-facing business, as well as an entire direct sales force aimed at pulling in enterprise to customers, it's Really critical for them to spend a lot of money as they scale up their business in the early days. And when you talk about doing less than three hundred million dollars in revenue on a valuation, at least an equity valuation of over seven billion, it's clear that investors are investing for growth. So I would expect to see them continue to spend a ton of money uh, that they don't necessarily, well, they have it, but not internally generated cash on sales and marketing.
0: Yeah, for sure. With the cash on their balance sheet, they've got several years of, of cash burn ahead of them if they need it. Um, and I, I'm trying to remember, Emily, if in the S1, I saw that, that phrase in, in the risk sections, we have never been profitable
1: <laughs> yeah. and,
0: and may never be profitable. That That's a very classic one when a company has just been gunning for growth. I can't remember if I saw this one in there, but the the story that you just told or the, the picture that you just painted, really, you know throws into relief that this is a company that's facing some competition it and it's not just um, named competitors that are in the paid space but also some unpaid competitors too and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the risk section. I thought looking through the financials it has a similar profile to so many that we've seen my my concern here just on those um, margins is. While they're improving. I wonder how much of a boost in the operating uh, percentage, which was less of a bleed than than the prior year was due to COVID. On the plus side, with that direct sales force, which didn't get to operate as it normally would have last year, as they built that, that, that's something that can help uh, with that enterprise business, help it grow into a more profitable posture uh, as it scales so we'll see this is one of those things that you'll just have to follow every quarter just tack on some more data and um, see in which direction the line items are moving but I do like that they were able to capitalize on covid and show these phenomenal top line growth rates so that that's to their advantage
1: and in terms of financial performance I didn't mention it the offset but another critical metric is looking at what percentage of their consumer users are, paid users. And you mentioned 77 million users as of the end of 2020, registered active learners on their platform. Only around three and a half million of those people had paid for a course or an offering. So around just less than 5% of total users. Uh, I'm not ready to Dock them points for that. This is the business of a freemium model: is you spend a lot of money getting as many users as you can into the platform. A small number of those pay, and then an even smaller number of those go on to spend a ton of money, which drive virtually all of the bottom line growth. So that's what we see here. They they don't need all 77 million to be paid users to be profitable. They still need a subset to go on to be really high value users, and that will be a critical metric to watch in the future to see if people are trickling through the funnel that way.
0: Right. And you know, Emily, it wouldn't be an episode of Motley Fool consumer goods industry focus if we didn't talk brand. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I love it. I just I found the opening to bring in brand here. Those 77 million users, while only a small percentage are paid, are doing something to extend that brand. Uh, the company markets through paid channels, uh, direct paid channels, but also through indirect channels, so SEO optimization. And the biggest of all, the biggest unpaid channel of all, word of mouth. So I think the bigger the user base, the more where you have siblings uh, telling siblings, yeah, just sign up for Coursera, man. You can do that course for free. I did it for free, and that helped me here. So there is something to be said for that, casting this really, really wide uh, freemium net, and then having a small percentage that actually end up as paid. And that is... Appears to be a monetizable platform. Question is, at what point does that then translate into like what I'd love to see this operating cash flows that are growing, free cash flow positive, uh, et cetera.
1: One of the good hints that that could translate into those numbers is looking at what percentage of their users come through the free funnel that then later go on to be enterprise or business customers. And I can't remember if you mentioned this metric at the top, so I apologize if I'm repeating it again for listeners, but it is critical. So I will take the the liberal aid here to repeat the numbers. But in the last year, 30% of all enterprise customers and 50% of new degree learners had previously come down through the free funnel. So they were already account holders at Coursera. That's really important to watch as well. Again, it's kind of the differentiator between what Coursera does versus other competitors. If they're getting a higher rate of users coming into the free funnel, converting into higher value programs, that could compel somebody to choose to partner with Coursera over an alternative.
0: Right. And plus this really powerful idea that they've had, which is to generate leads, off of uh, customers that itself you know, is a sort of a snowballing flywheel effect. yeah, so there's there's definitely some momentum that they can wring out of this long term. So Emily, before you lead us through a discussion of risks, let me just uh, say a couple things about the management team because you're probably wondering if the co-founders are still around, and one of them is. So uh, Kohler, she left Coursera in two thousand and sixteen. So this was one of the two Stanford professors, um, and she is a sort of phenomenal thinker. I think for people as brilliant as these two, it's it's almost difficult to stick around when you are an academic still writing papers in the real world. Um, But Andrew Eng has done that. He is now the chairman, and he owns about seven percent of the shares. Uh, Kohler left in two thousand sixteen. Her latest venture is a drug discovery company. It's private it utilizes artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's called Insistro to work on drug discovery. I thought that was very interesting. The CEO is named Jeff Madjon Calda and he was recruited in 2017. He's also been an entrepreneur himself and is a Stanford grad, so a little bit of a familiar club here. And He's pretty well incentivized himself for a CEO that was brought on emily he's got 3.2% of outstanding shares. Um, last thing I want to mention is that the original venture capital groups that have funded Coursera through numerous rounds are still big believers. They're not cashing out, at least for now. Post-IPO uh, venture capital groups like Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield and Byers, one of the most well-known venture cap firms out there, they're going to own collectively about 26% of the, the company. Now, will they sell in the years to come? Um, or will some of this disappear after a lockup period, certainly. But the signal is that the original investors pretty much believe in this company, and I think they see further appreciation ahead.
1: And that's kind of a good transition to the risks here, because that that within itself and the dilution that we experience as part of the IPO process is Probably worth mentioning as a key risk of Coursera, uh, but for me, and I'm going to combine kind of my biggest risk also alongside my opinion here. It's hard to separate the two. For me, the biggest risk and what colors my opinion about this this business today is actually just the challenges that exist with monetizing higher education in general, and. It's funny because I look at all the individual trees of this business, and I like them all. But when I look at the forest, I'm not really excited about investing in this industry. And it reminds me a lot about the challenges that 2U. Uh, the business is the number two and the letter U. The ticker is T-W-O-U. Uh, but 2U, while not a one-to-one comparison with what Coursera does, was in the business and still is in the business of partnering with higher education providers to provide on- an online platform for them to kind of digitize the the course load right as Businesses and as universities were moving digitally, they needed a partner to make that happen. And 2 you was that partner. And so, again, that's not a one to one comparison, but there is one similarity, one critical similarity, which is that they do have the same revenue sharing agreements with their partners. So, depending on what uh, people would pay for the courses offered through 2 you and offered through Coursera, each of those businesses gets a fee. So, as a larger number of students move their online processes, online learning to their platforms, they get a higher percentage. And you would think that would be a tailwind because obviously digital learning has has you know, dramatically increased, just not in the last year, but over the last decade or so. But it's actually interesting because as di- learning went digital, programs got smaller, they got cheaper, and they got more competitive. And suddenly to you and all these others were spending a ton of marketing dollars just to get their foot in the door with their partners. And then when they had these really lucrative contracts, they pulled in a big university where the t- tuition dollars were much higher and the margins were much higher. One of two things happened either the programs brought that process in house to save money. Or they actually decreased the number of users that they were letting into the program to keep it competitive. So that negatively, both of those things really hurt to you as a business. And while Coursera is different in the fact that they have a consumer offering in a way that to you never had. The focus that the business put on making partnerships, especially with universities, moving towards degree and boot camp programs, it makes me a little bit nervous because they're headed in the direction where 2U was. And if you look at where 2U is today, they're headed in the direction of Coursera. They're suddenly trying to get out of the university program, getting into certificates and boot camps, cheaper offerings. And I just wonder if it's a really challenging place to monetize. I worry a little bit about what the higher education landscape looks like over time. Uh, But I also acknowledge that this could be something like Peloton, where I had a bad experience investing in Fitbit, and I never gave Peloton a chance until very recently. And I wonder if the same thing's going to happen with Coursera, where I'm a little bit of a skeptic now because of my experience with 2U, but maybe I give it a chance in the future. I'm curious what your thoughts are here, Asit.
0: Uh, So... So interesting, let me quickly give my my two risks and then answer your question. So the first risk that uh, worries me a bit is that the partners, so universities they're the main partners, don't grant exclusive rights to content. So there's nothing to prevent a university um, once they have worked with Coursera to basically take the same degree program and just put it on another platform. And that seems to me, uh, Hard when you're trying to build some kind of competitive moat. Right now, a lot of the competitive moat is the exclusive relationships with so many great institutions. It's it's good for branding. So there's a, a risk there. And then also, um, if you sort of merge that up with what you were just talking about, Emily, there's an expense to working with these educational partners. You have an uncertain payoff uh, because you've got to do a lot of handholding um, at the beginning of the relationship and. Every educational institution I've looked at that's gone public, I think, to you is one. Coursera certainly discusses this. You actually are putting up a lot of investment upfront, and the university may not stick around. They may diminish as as you just walk through um, the number of people taking uh, the course. There's so many ways that your investment might not get recouped, but you've got to do that every time you start a new degree program with university or bring a new university on. So this is a long term risk that it's it's uncertain. it's not a slam dunk just to sign on with a new university. and there are many global institutions that they don't have relationships with that are very well regarded on a global scale. So as they expand, that becomes a risk. Second um, that I, I want to talk about is competition. This is a crowded space. I mentioned udemy at the beginning of the podcast. There's also LinkedIn learning. So LinkedIn uh, bought a really popular, skills online, online skills platform. I think it was called Linda. I'm not sure if that was the name, but now it's LinkedIn learning and that itself is growing fairly quickly. You've talked about to you, but you know, there's also free resources. So if you're looking at building skills, there's, there are a few things that are as good as a combination of YouTube. And let's see if it's more academic Khan Academy between the two of those, you, you can do pretty well. I mean, there's so many things again, anecdotal. I always make fun of anecdotes and I go on and tell them. <laughs> There's so many things that I've learned. I become w- not halfway handy, but one quarter handy around the house just because of YouTube. <laughs> so if you don't need the certificate, why not use YouTube, Khan Academy, Wikipedia? That's actually a competitive force that Coursera cites in its S1, this alternative path where you don't even need the freemium model that they offer. You've already got your go-to sources. So um, when you wrap all this together, what's my opinion? I was I looking at to you and Chegg at the same time, and I was interested in both companies. And for some reason, and I, I couldn't put my finger on it at the time. And I want to say that I was really smart, and I anticipated all these things you were saying, Emily. So I I never really followed <laughs> to you, but a few things bothered me, and I think maybe it was just the difficulty of having a business model that at that time was dependent on institutions uh, because academic institutions are ornery; They they have their own way of doing things. It's not the, the private sector. But I followed Chegg for the longest time before I bought it and I really liked how focused their model was. And Coursera strikes me as a company with a lot of promise, but in this competitive space, I just wonder about their ability to draw a big competitive moat where they become dominant, and then you're seeing them scale. I got to see the cash. At some point in time, show me those operating cash flows. Even if I can visualize them down in the future, I can really get behind a stock. Now, so far out of the gate, it's proving me wrong. People are very excited about this. Uh, It seems like the uh, stock has gone up every single day since the IPO uh, just a few days ago, and, and not just you know by a percentage point or two, but uh, very vigorously. So that's always you know a, a decent sign. But over time, how will this company respond when it's stress tested? I don't see quite the answer in the S one, I don't think they have a very tight answer. At, at the end of the day, it's a company that has a lot of very laudable goals, married up with a pretty decent business model. If the space weren't so hyper competitive, and I go back to this because I think Udemy, which has raised a lot of money through its own financing rounds, will one day go public. And it could be sooner than we expect via SPAC. It could be this year, although I don't think they're <laughs> forecasting that or broadcasting it. An IPO, it could be next year. But at some point, they'll tap the capital markets that are public. And then you'll have a choice. Yet one more publicly traded vehicle to think through these, so I think in this space online education, I prefer that focused business model, and this just has too many approaches to the market so I'm a little skeptical is is my opinion
1: Wow, I didn't expect for us to have kind of the same opinion coming out of this conversation, but I guess we do
0: yeah, and now whenever this happens though Emily watch it prove us I way know. wrong
1: <laughs> inevitably <laughs> <Right>? inevitably. <laughs> Well, Asit, as always, thank you so much for joining and providing your valuable insights.
0: Yes, it was a blast. I feel so much smarter for talking about online academia for the last 45 minutes or so.
1: (laughs) We're all smarter when we get to listen to you talk.
0: (laughs) Uh, Too kind.
1: Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, you can always shoot us an email at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on!